Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. I'm your humble host, Amrit Sandhu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by great creation itself. To keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself, do us a solid. Subscribe to the Inspired Evolution podcast on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution podcast. Now sit back, relax, open your mind, open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired keep evolving welcome to the inspired evolution and it's an emotional treat to be back here today again with dr daniel goldman daniel how are you today sir uh just fine and it's a pleasure to be back on the show thanks 
Uh, it is such a treat for us to have you back. For those tuning in to Daniel for the first time, Dr. Goldman was on the show previously, so please do go check out that episode. That episode has gone gangbusters here on the Inspired Evolution. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with me and my questions. I think it has a lot to do with the incredible work that Daniel continues to do in the world. If you'll bear me with me just a sec, I'll do the honours. He's an internationally known psychologist, lectures frequently to professional groups, mm. business audiences and colleges, campuses around the world. And as a science journalist, he reported on the brain and behavioral sciences, and he wrote for the New York Times for many years. In 1995, believe it or not, that was 22 years ago, the Emotional yeah. Intelligence book was written and was on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year and a half. Currently has more than 5 million copies, and that was when this was uh, submitted as a blurb. Probably since then, it's probably gone up even more. In uh, probably. <laughs> has been translated into 40 languages. Um, it's been a bestseller in many countries. Mm. And he's written a, a, lot, a number, a number, a number of books. All, like, I've read so many of them and I know I've only scratched the surface. There is so much to go on. Topics include mm. self-deception, creativity, transparency, mm. meditation, social-emotional learning, um, eco-literacy, the ecological crisis. And, uh, yeah, it is. there is so much depth and ground that we can cover when you're here, Daniel. Thank you so much for doing this with us here again today. Such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Daniel, last week we were speaking about emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. We dive deep into your books. I guess somewhere I wanted to sort of start this time was to understand mm -hmm. a little bit, do you ever look back at your own life um, to the Daniel that was, I don't know, mm -hmm. maybe 10, 9, mm -hmm. 8, 7 mm -hmm. and go, huh, I was always going to be this guy. Or is it really weird for you that you're this pronounned author writing oh, about these neurosciences and topics? That's very like, interesting. So when yeah. I was a kid is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Do you ever look Did at I have yourself? a glimmer of this? No, but, you know, my parents were, you know, my father was a, a teacher of the humanities and uh, somehow the writing came maybe from his side. My mom was a social worker. Mm. Uh, and maybe the science part came from that. I have no idea. I think when I was seven, I didn't care. <laughs> when I was eight, I cared less. And when I was nine, I never thought about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can't create a, a line, a vector from there to here. Yeah, Somehow it happened enough. along the way. Yeah. yeah. And so what was the, the key moment? Because I know you traveled to India at some point. Um, to deepen your exploration into, I guess, the mind, but I guess I'm telling your story for you. I wonder what, what was the impetus that sort of shifted you onto your exploration of mind and behavior and, yeah, what sort of brought that all about? Um, yeah, well, uh, two things. One was that I had always been interested in psychology, mm. uh, as, and uh, that's the profession I went into. But I also uh, had an interest in meditation, particularly, you know, as a kind of anxiety ridden undergrad in college, I found it really helped cool me out and calm yeah. down and help me be clear. Uh, so that was my first motivation to get into it. And when I then I, I went to um, actually to Harvard in, in clinical psychology for graduate school, and mm. it turned out that my fellowship included a year of travel and study abroad. Yeah. Well, when I found that out, I thought, wow, I'm going to India. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would like to see where the end point is for following this spiritual path. And uh, so I did. And 
I was I, I had met uh, Ram Dass. I don't know if your listeners know yeah. Ram Dass. He was a very important voice. He'd been uh, as under the under the name Richard Alpert yeah. had been a psychedelic, uh, you know, Johnny Appleseed spreading the, the mm. word. And then he had a kind of conversion. He went to India and he met this amazing yogi, Neem Kroli Baba, mm. and came back as Ram Dass and talked for years and years and years until his recent death. He talked about spiritual paths and spiritual evolution. And so I went to India to see, you know, what's up with Neemkarl Baba and those mm. kind of people. Uh, and I saw that they were, you know, quantum leaps different than the people, yeah. say, I knew as the famous professors of psychology mm. that I was studying with, uh, you know, back in the States. This was, they had developed a different part of themselves that you never really heard about in psychology. Mm. Uh, you know, and it had to do with the spiritual self. Mm. And they were lovely human beings. They were caring, mm. they were present, they were uh, not attached. They didn't want anything. That was amazing. Yeah. That's a whole yeah. episode. In <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the ones that I met who I think were the most evolved actually didn't care if anybody knew they were evolved. They didn't mm. want followers. They didn't want fame. They didn't want money. It was remarkable compared mm. to the, you know, the value structure of uh, the modern world. Mm. It was a complete turnaround. I love the way that you use the word the modern world, um, because I think oftentimes we sort of conflate certain ideologies with the West versus the East. Um, uh, but I think even, you know, like, Maybe it's just a, yeah, what's happened over the, the ages. Development has come oh. to all sorts of parts of the world and things in India, I know, being Indian, I guess, lots of lots is changing over there at the moment as well. But there is still Here's, real spiritual. Interesting. Happens. Here's how I see that history evolving. I think that mm. these ideas spread widely. I think Indigenous mm. peoples have them in their own way. Yeah. Uh, the early uh, Desert Fathers in Christianity were very much like yogis in the Himalayas today. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but I think what happened was that the institutionalization of religion in Europe particularly squelched the, the spiritual path, uh, mm -hmm. seeing it as heretical because it needed no intervention by the church or any institution between the person and the spirit mm. it was direct you know it's your experience and uh what do you do with all these priests and so on who are running around they need to work too <laughs> so mm. it became uh, it became heresy and i think in in the what we now think of as the east particularly you know in sufism and uh, among yogis in india and certainly in tibet and China and those cultures, they, they had a different attitude. They saw value in supporting people who would devote their lives to spiritual development. Mm. Uh, and uh, I know that when I would be with uh, Neem Kroli Baba in India or with other saints, there was a, an understanding in that culture of what's called darshan, darshan uh, which is yeah. just being with because there's something in the presence. In fact, the Tibetan word for the Dalai Lama is not the Dalai Lama. It translates as the presence. Mm. 
because when you're with a being like that, you it, you know you get a contact high basically. <laughs> it, it's kind of contagious. Yeah, yeah, and we 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 tapped into um, the contagious nature of emotional emotions in our last episode uh, about emotional intelligence and how yeah. yeah the develop cultivate one of the big takeaways actually from the last episode if I can pay homage to it was that was one of them for me is the. I'm going to butcher it, but it was more the the more stable individual emotionally, actually has the influence in a in a in interaction yeah. over the other, um, yeah, which has been huge for me in my walk going forward. You know, especially oh, as a coach and making sure that mm. yeah, you know, like I'm coming from a really well grounded place. Um, yeah, and I will talking about grounded. There's a whole new punchline, which is grounded body, open heart. And uh, clear mind, which is mm. Uh, mm. tagline to your new book, Why We Meditate. But before we start diving into some of that work, there's a niche that wants to be scratched in this conversation around the 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 sort of the the dance between spirituality and psychology. I think mm. you know you know you mentioned Ramdas, and he was obviously um, a well-renowned psychologist as well, not yeah. too unlike yourself. And um, you know, at a certain point, not everybody makes the bridge, but not everybody makes the jump. But there seems to be this this dance between psychology and spirituality, right. psychology and spirituality. And mm. when I look from the outside looking in, um, yeah, psychology seems to be much more about the nature of the mind um, and how we sort of approach it, mm-hmm. um, whereas spirituality seems much more um, etheric and the nature of the spirit. Um, do you think, how, how did, yeah, had like uh, your awareness and your thoughts on this, well, yeah. so are they dipoles or do they come together? Like is it a natural evolution that they come together or is it potentially that some of the best, um, yeah, after a while working with the mind, you realize that spirituality is something that you need to come home to. I'm sorry, I'm pre-programming the answer. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, actually, uh, my own experience tracked that evolution quite a bit. When I was mm. studying psychology in graduate school, it was you would never think about anything mm. spiritual. That was totally yeah. taboo. <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, it, it goes I back to a famous uh, passage from Sigmund Freud. Mm. Where he was, he, he was in correspondence with a famous Nobel laureate poet named Roman, uh, Roland, Roman, Roman, I'm butchering his name anyway, mm. around the turn of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this poet said he was a student of a famous uh, Indian mystic, Ramakrishna. Mm-hmm. And he said, I have an experience where I transcend myself and I, you know, he describes it to Freud and Freud writes back, you know, I looked into my own mind, I find nothing like that. And mm. I think we have to dismiss it. And, he, and you know, it was kind of taboo in psychology for a century <laughs> afterward. However, since then, I think many uh, psychologists themselves have found, for example, mindfulness is very helpful, mm. and that's a spiritual uh, practice, although it can be done in a kind of secular way. And I think that now uh, there's more and more melding among certain psychologists, not by any means mm-hmm. the mainstream of a spiritual path. But when you talk, I've talked to the Dalai Lama about this. He says, you know, psychology and modern psychology is kind of kindergarten level. 
It doesn't know anything about the subtle body. It doesn't know anything about uh, how the mind and spirit can evolve beyond the limits that it studies. So there's a body of mainstream psychology, which is very limited from a spiritual point of view hmm. uh, and dismisses the spirit. And then there are psychologists and psychologies that try to bring in the spiritual dimension. And, and I think the Dalai Lama is right that there are many, many um, practices and in fact methodologies that mm. help people get to higher levels of consciousness that are unknown in psychology. Mm. That's my assessment. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. And uh, what is the pull to higher levels of consciousness? What are, um, what's awaiting for us in those spaces? Well, uh, if I go back to what the uh, yogis were like that I met in India, mm. uh, the Tibetan Lamas or the Sufis and so on, uh, it's a way of being uh, which is uh, anxiety free, which mm. is not driven by desire and anger and hatred, uh, which is free of those kind of uh, earthly pulls, mm. and which is very loving, very compassionate, mm -hmm. very present, and uh, probably very blissful. Mm. Uh, it, I think it's intrinsically rewarding because it feels yeah. good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that brings me home to one of the questions um, that I've got is why we meditate. You recently wrote a book with Rinpoche, sure. um, and I think Rinpoche is a salutation, but I've, um, I didn't note down his, his name. His um, name is uh, Rinpoche, Sokni. the Tibetan name. Yeah. yeah. Rinpoche is an honorific. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Um, so uh, how did, uh, so you mentioned India, and I know Tibetan, uh, lots of Tibetan lamas get trained up in India, um, and that's where there's for, like mm. formal schooling. <laughs> Sorry, I'm formal yeah. in apostrophes. <laughs> um, occurs. Um, but yeah, how did you, what, were the, what was the impetus for writing um, while we meditate? Let's start there. Sure. Well, uh, I've been studying with Tibetan lamas. It's an evolution. I started with uh, yogis and then I evolved to a Vipassana meditation. Mm -hmm. And then from there I went into Tibetan practice. And uh, Sokni comes from a very uh, wonderful family that goes back generations. Mm. who were all meditation masters. Yeah. And he has four brothers, the three of whom are very active now as meditation teachers, Chokinima Rinpoche, Mingyur Rinpoche, and then Sokni Rinpoche. I've studied with all of them. Mm. And uh, Sokni is also a longtime friend. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I was at a retreat with Sokni and I gave a talk on a book I'd written about the science of meditation called Altered Traits, kind hmm. of a review of all of the best science. And I gave a talk on it and he said, you know, my Asian students would be really interested. Let's uh, write something for them. That evolved in this book, hmm. which is now translated into all kinds of languages. So uh, we didn't really plan on the book in a kind of linear way. It just kind of evolved. And my own, you know, if you ask me, why do you meditate? The answer would be different. For example, mm. when I did my, as I said, my initial interest was because it helped me with my anxiety. Then I got very interested during my Vipassana years in 
kind of really amazing altered states, mm-hmm. blissful states and so on, uh, which I saw eventually as, as a, a dead end. And then I went into Tibetan practice mm. uh, and I've been working on that since. Mm. Can you, I think that'd be um, quite interesting for some people to, to tune into because Vipassana um, is quite an incredible time away to disconnect um, and will reconnect to other parts. Mm, mm. Um, and yeah, you mentioned the word dead end and maybe that's um, a heavy handed term or maybe it's not. Can you describe what you meant by? Oh yeah, I, I, don't, I don't, I, in fact, I'd like to uh, delete that. And say, for me, it, it was, the dead end for me was the fascination with states. Mm. Uh, that you might get into on a Vipassana retreat. Mm. So the, the standard uh, setup for a Vipassana retreat is that you take 10 days out of your life mm-hmm. and you very intensively begin to work with your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see that your the thoughts that were your preoccupations before you took the retreat uh, are actually distractions. Mm. And that if you let them come and let them go, and stay with uh, what's left. It gets more and more interesting. And in fact, that's a complete path in itself. It ends up in mm-hmm. what they call a nabonic state. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not a dead end in that sense. Mm-hmm. But uh, I kind of got stalled along the way because I kept experiencing uh, states of mind that I found very, very pleasant. Mm. And I didn't want to go any further. <laughs> so, but then in, in the Tibetan uh, path, I saw that it leads to uh, a kind of an admirable mode of being, which I've talked to you about. Mm. And there were many Tibetan lamas who thought, oh, I thought, gee, when I grew up, I'd like to be like that. So mm-hmm. I, I uh, started doing those practices. And it was an easy segue from one to the other. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. I love um, what you're describing there because you followed your inspiration into your evolution <laughs> and obviously inspired evolution is uh, the whole vibe oh, yeah. here. And yeah, so what is, um, yeah, I, I obviously, you know, we, we could start um, by discussing um, what was your inspirations about, like having read the book, I know openness is a, is a whole massive <laughs> concept unto itself. Um, can I start there or is that too nebulous well, to start? Well, start wherever you want. It's a little advanced, but that's great. <laughs> yeah, how do you, um, was it the openness that, that drew you in of these, um, of these leaders? And then, well, yeah, then I'll ask um, you how we cultivate that in our own life. Yep. I think it was the, uh, the whiff of openness, the, mm. that is, the uh, experience of what a person who lived in that spaciousness was like mm. that got me very interested. So I met uh, many Tibetan lamas who live in an uh, internal openness. And openness means you're not confined. And mm. one of the things that confines us is our thoughts. Mm. Uh, we, you know, a stream of thought, we get interested in this and then that leads to the other thing and that goes on to the other thing and we lead our lives following one mind stream after another after another 
and in openness you you let them come and you let them go and it creates a, a kind of spaciousness inside mm. uh, that's not um, you could say trapped by these streams of thought and so how do we approach openness are there practices um that the lamas espouse yeah what is well yes and some will uh introduce an experience of openness right away Mm. others will take you through a more uh, methodical set of steps to Mm -hmm. cultivate the ability to for example focus and concentrate and let those distractions go uh, and to use that then to uh, stay stabilize in a uh, state that's very open but doesn't have a target like the breath you might use the mm. breath at the start and then you go from there to a kind of uh, what shall I say a greater openness or lesser openness mm. more open openness it's, it's, <laughs> you, you know when you get into these um, experiences of what's called the non-dual actually Mm. it's beyond language so Mm. it's very hard to put words to what these experiences are Mm. what do some of the practical um is it exercises that we do um what do some of the practical exercises look like sogni uh starts with one that i really like it's called Mm. drop it Right now, my mind. I love his humor, by the way. Sorry to, sorry to interject, but I, I love his humor, by the way. Yeah, I know. He's very. He loves to laugh. So, drop it. Drop it. Assumes that we're caught in something, some stream of thought, and drop it is just an exercise in letting it go. And you take your your hands and put them in the air, and then and then you exhale. And as you exhale, you drop it. (laughs) <laughs> whatever it was and mm. the mantra of drop it is who cares what happens happens mm. uh, so you just go <sighs> exhale and it turns out that that interrupts your train of thought uh, so that's a first taste of one of these uh, more open states because what you've just done is to let whatever your internal fascination was go mm. So, that, so like that's a, the beginning, yeah. So it's like a pattern interrupt. Are you visualizing that you're actually holding on to the thought as you're dropping it, or it's just that's just a physiological, just let it go? It's just a physiological. You've talked about mind, body, spirit. This is the body mm. part of dropping yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you slap your, knee, your knees uh, as you do it, and it interrupts your train of thought. It's that simple. Yeah. yeah. I love that. And is most of it... Um, and so that's uh, interrupting our pattern of thought and just allowing ourselves to drop um, what emerges. Well, it gives you a moment of not having anything occupy your mind. Mm-hmm. I, at, at the risk of tuning into um, some of the thoughts of those that might be listening in, <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> and then you drop it and another thought emerges, and then you drop it and another thought emerges. <laughs> <laughs> Can you take us deeper? <laughs> yeah. Well, then, then you might go on to, for example, following your breath mm-hmm. or to a breath control exercise. And these are, uh, uh, the Tibetans have used some that you find in, in yoga, uh, the yoga that's very popular, pranayama style mm-hmm. uh, exercises. One of, that they like a lot is what's called the vase breath, where you breathe very deeply into your belly. 
uh, and you hold it. And uh, actually, there's a, now a lot of scientific research showing that if you do this, uh, if you breathe in as, as much as you, as deeply as you can, letting your belly swell out, and hold it for as long as you can, and exhale for as long as you can. When I say long as you can, I mean comfortably. Mm. Uh, if you do that four times, it shifts your physiology from kind of the nervous, sympathetic nervous system state that too, we live in too much of the time to uh, a more laid back, what's called an, a parasympathetic nervous system response. It's a recovery mode. Uh, mm. And it, it's a it, quick way to get out of a stress spiral that you might be in. So that's another exercise that, that uh, uh, Sotani Rinpoche talks about in the book. And in the book, by the way, we go through these exercises and the rationale for them from a Tibetan point of view, and then I come in with a, like a scientific angle, mm. like mm. I just did uh, on, the, on the breath. So he goes through many, many such, a, a whole progression of these exercises in the book, mm -hmm. uh, including, for example, on compassion. Mm. Uh, you know, meditating on someone else's suffering and trying to share with them your good feeling. As you were saying earlier, uh, for example, in coaching, if you're stable in a positive state and the person you're coaching is wrought up or stressed out, you can help them calm down because emotions mm. are contagious. And there is a, a compassion exercise where you take on in your own mind the person's pain or suffering and you give them your own stability your own even handedness about it or, you know a, a better state and you you do that repeatedly with each breath mm. uh, and uh, it helps the person i think because of this contagion effect you're talking about mm. and it helps you too actually mm. Uh, because you've gotten in that state. So compassion, there's a large literature now in science on compassion and the benefits of compassion. It turns out, surprise, it makes people uh, more generous. It makes them more compassionate. makes them more likely to help someone in need. Uh, and that, that was always the claim, you know, in spiritual traditions. And now, guess what? Science has found out. It's catching up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's an interesting dance there between, and I, I would love to get your thoughts on, um, at the risk of turning you into a dictionary for a second, <laughs> um, sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Sure. Um, I think the three often, um, yeah, often get interchanged in, in dialogue and language, mm. but... Over time, um, having been on, well, I want to say a bit of a path, but that would be dishonoring the path, <laughs> this inspired evolution path, has been um, very wide, very open and really incredible for me personally. Um, and so in there, I've had to come to learn that there is actually subtle differences between those three things, sympathy, empathy and compassion. I'd love to get your thoughts on the differences between um, what each of those terms mean to you, yeah. Let me tell you a story. Yes, please. That, that will explain this. I love it. This was an actual experiment that was done mm. at the Princeton Theological Seminary with 
students are studying to be preachers, basically. Mm. And uh, half of them were given the parable of the Good Samaritan, the man who stopped to help the stranger in need by the side of the road. Mm -hmm. The other half were given random Bible topics. And then they're told that uh, they should go one by one over to another building where they'll give the practice sermon and be evaluated on it. And as each of them goes from one building to another, they pass a guy who's bent over and moaning in pain. So the question is, do they have sympathy, empathy, or compassion for this guy? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that if you're thinking about the Good Samaritan, it didn't make any difference. It, it was whether you thought you were late that determined. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so what you were ruminating on had no effect. No, it had it no effect. But you might pressure. feel some sympathy, like, uh -huh. oh, that poor guy. Mm. Empathy is deeper. Empathy means he's suffer you tune into the suffering of the person. Mm. Uh, uh, like he's bent over, he must have a stomach problem. Mm -hmm. Compassion means you stop and you do something. So there's mm. a, a spectrum there that goes from sympathy, which is kind of very surface, to empathy, mm -hmm. which is a deeper feeling with, to compassion, which is feeling strongly enough about the person's suffering that you're going to do something. Mm. Can I ask, can I take this deeper? So there's a person drowning in the water. Um, and let's see if this metaphor helps me delineate where I'm trying to go. So there's a person drowning in the water and I'm on the docks. Um, if I'm sympathizing with that person from what I'm hearing, I can see their pain and I can acknowledge it for myself because I'm sympathizing. If I'm empathetic in that position, am I, th what am I doing in that situation? Am I feeling like potentially? So if you're sympathetic, yeah, it's interesting. So you might say, mm. oh, that poor guy, if mm. you're sympathetic. Yeah. If you're empathetic, you'd say you'd uh, be much more upset. You would be feeling his pain or uh, panic. While, while standing on the dock. Yeah. While standing now, on the I dock. have to ask you a question. Are you a good swimmer or not? <laughs> I'm, okay. Say, I'm okay. I'm <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, is there an I'm inner tube around? <laughs> so then compassion, you have to be compassionate for yourself as well as the other person. Mm. So would you jump in to help that person depends on whether you have the skill to help the person. If mm. you, you have the chops, the swimming ability, yeah. or you have an inner tube, or you have something that you could bring to the person, that would be taking compassionate action. I love that. Thank you so much. That really helps me understand it better. So sympathy is I can feel for that person. Empathy is uh, I'm feeling what they're feeling in that situation. Um, and then, yeah, the compassion. And I love the bit that I love about um, the metaphor we just unpacked is that compassion comes in many forms. It could be the tube. Sorry. It could be me swimming out. It could be me finding help for someone that could swim sure. out to that person. Yeah. Yeah. What are your resources? That's the question. Mm. What can you bring to that person? And so compassion is a vast, of well, it's interesting because spiritually it, it, it consistently mm. comes up again and again and again. But for those that are tuning in, um, and I'll put my hand up as myself included, like I've started mm. approaching this work, but it can be quite intimidating um, to think oh. about 
the state of the world sometimes and how sure. much need there is out there and then okay i'm going to bring my compassion to to what like wow um, well yeah, it's it feels like a tall I, order yeah so i asked the dalai lama about this mm. i did a book with the dalai lama called the force for good which was about his vision for the world i said you know each of us has a very different sphere of influence and we can only do so much or maybe we can do a lot depending on who we are mm. and he said something really interesting he said everybody can influence somebody else everybody has a sphere your family your friends uh if you have a podcast it's your listeners if you mm. if you're a politician it maybe it's in setting policy if you're a uh, you know, wealthy person, then it has to do with what you can do with your money. He said, think about what your sphere is and what you can do that will actually help and mm. do that now, even if you won't live to see the fruit of that, which I thought was interesting. Uh, in other words, it's not for gratification for you, but mm. rather because it will benefit either right now or tomorrow or eventually other people mm. and he said and don't care about that part just do what mm -hmm. you can do whatever you can and it's different for each of us mm. don't feel you're going to solve all the problems they're enormous enormous yeah yeah i um i really resonate with what you're saying because at the moment um well it's colliding a couple of things within me personally i'm reading a book called uh, die wise by stephen jenkinson and one of these he's a he's a writer but he's a poet in some ways as well i would say um even more so than a well writers of poets um but he talks about one of the meditations he's or contemplations he's got me going on is the idea of a quark where the light has the star itself has potentially passed away but its light is still traveling towards us um, and we're here and we're experiencing the light mm. of that star, which is no longer there in the present moment, mm. according to the science, yet its light is still traveling tens of thousands, millions of years into right. travel right. to us to be able to witness mm. it and see its light. And it's been a profound contemplation um, and not too dissimilar to what you've just described in that um our time here on earth is potentially limited uh well not potentially it's, it's no, it is limited, limited yeah. right um, it is limited we all have um, an expiration de date depending on how science goes these days <laughs> and the chance longevity has gone a lot they're doing they're really they're really battling that longevity frontier yeah. at the moment it seems Count on it. yeah yeah the, uh, some of the hairbrained stuff i've heard recently well not hairbrained but some of the really interesting stuff i would say that makes my hair stand on end is uh yeah maybe they're discussing like it's turning from oxygen-based species to nitrogen-based species and I was like, what are we doing? Wow. But okay. Um, but I've totally digressed. Um, in that, yeah, that light is still traveling to you, but the light, the, the star itself is gone and it invites the contemplation that you will surely be gone at some point, yet mm. the trace of you having been here, sure, the light that you've left behind, right. touch wood, you know, what are the... Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, what is what is that what is that imprint that you've left in some way? And that's what I'm hearing from you as well. Is uh, you know, and you've written a whole book on social intelligence. Um, yeah, the the compassion.
piece in terms of the legacy that we leave is really mm. the, the kindness that we leave behind, would you say? Oh, that's very beautifully put. And I think that's exactly the Dalai Lama's point too, that each of us can have a lasting influence. It'd be different for each one of us, but that can be our legacy. That can be what we leave behind once we go. Uh, mm. Whatever we began might continue. Exactly. Mm. At the risk of changing gears too rapidly, too fast, mm. you, you coach a lot of leaders and you speak to a lot of leaders and success is this um, conversation that people are regularly now, especially in my circles, asking people to redefine. Um, age due to the nature of the world, like <laughs> infinite growth on a, fin on a finite planet, <laughs> read mm. with resources mm. can be, you know, please redefine your success um, sure. and your KPIs. Uh, <laughs> can't believe we went from uh -huh. compassion to KPIs, but we're doing it. <laughs> um but in that space, do you, yeah, like, how, like, do you help reorient leaders from what they're currently defining as their success? And how do you espouse um, values and virtues mm. such as compassion um, into that space when it doesn't, it's not what's currently socially programmed into them? You know, I, I'm writing a book uh, on. Uh, a kind of a wrap-up look at emotional intelligence. There's a lot of research on it now. Mm. And one of the surprises uh, is that uh, a leader who is caring actually is more compelling, engages people more, motivates them better, gets them to perform better than the leader who is driven by competitiveness. Uh, I have a friend who coaches C-suite executives and she says, every one of them is there because they were driven uh, mm. over the course of their career you know they had to achieve their goals but once they get into a, a leadership position if they don't temper that with empathy and caring they're going to mm. be an awful leader they're not going to be a leader you want to be led by mm -hmm. uh, you know consider leaders you've loved versus bosses you've hated Mm -hmm. And uh, the the ones I, I've asked this around the world actually in yeah. talks I've given, you know, tell me about leaders you loved and leaders you hated. And the leaders people love are among other things compassionate and caring. And the ones they hated are distant, competitive, judgmental, critical. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think sadly the reason that those leaders they hate are like that is because they beat themselves up in the same way. Uh, too often, that's how they got to where they are, by having this kind of perfectionist standard that it's never good enough, and so they only see what's wrong with how they did uh, mm. and drive themselves to get better. And then mm. when they become leaders, they lead in the same way. They mm -hmm. see what people did wrong, but they don't see what they're doing right. And mm. that's very demotivating. Does that start at an early age when potentially, and it's probably not the root of all of it, but um, yeah. maybe uh, when, you know, parents can be critical of their children um, to sort of. Well, here's an interesting question. Yeah. Think about the difference between coming home to parents who say, how did you do on the test? Mm. Or to versus parents who say, uh, who are you kind to today? <laughs> It's a totally different way of thinking about it. Totally different. 
And yeah. the kid, sadly, most of us, who has parents who are only interested in how well you do in school, uh, not how you did socially or, you know, uh, who are you a popular kid because you're, you're nice to other kids, you're kind to other kids. Uh, if parents continually only ask about achievement, then you can mm -hmm. see how that might lead to a leader who is achievement-driven. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the invitation is not necessarily to surrender achievement, but to temper it with care and love and empathy and compassion. Is that correct? I think so. It's not that you don't care about your child doing well in school. You want mm. them to learn too. But you're, you're cultivating another side of them, of their being at mm. the same time. Yeah. yeah, I speak from experience having looked at some of this work myself recently and uh, um, going from KPIs to self-love now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I love these conversations with you. Um, you know, the concept of self-love is it's a whole spiritual calling and it can be so deep, so profound, but I also find it can be quite nebulous um, to, to even where to begin with self-love. Uh, for me personally, maybe I've just got too analytical a mind um, being trained as an engineer and being achievement oriented. So to unpack that recently, I started working on, uh, on kindness for others. Mm. Um, and that sounds like compassion is like, can I just, you know, and I love the way you describe it. Like, who was I kind to today? You know? <laughs> and, um, I have this little, uh, fun experiment that I, well, I've sort of played a game with myself, which is like, I try to collect 14 thank yous every day. Um, and then that way I've done something for someone, if they, if they, you know, if That's they great. say thank you. I like that. Um, sometimes I don't hit the number 14 though. And I, I find little uh -huh. hacks, which is like, I'll go to the shops and I'll buy something. <laughs> and I was like, thank you for the badges. But we won't talk about that here while everybody's listening. Okay? <laughs> but it's a, it's a metric to hit. So I've got my KPIs for kindness. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in there I found that, you know, that went a reasonable amount of the way and it definitely buoyed me um, through certain parts of my journey. And then becoming a father, having, you know, sleep deprivation being a part of my journey and, you know, like a lot of, a lot of stuff came up. Um, parenting is an incredible personal development school in itself. Mm. Um, in there I found that actually when I was you know, in my downtime, in my spaces, when I wasn't out hunting for my thank yous, um, I found myself quite cold at times when I felt I was depleted of resources um, internally. And I realised I was responding to everybody with the same way that I talked to myself. Mm -hmm. And mm. this was a huge realisation for me, um, which was, and the, the nugget of it was, I'm only as kind to others as I am kind to myself Yourself. at the heart of it. Um, and so I started with this big concept of self-love and then it sort of came down to kindness to collect gratitude from, you know, my actions in the outer world. Mm. And now it's come home to this closer to actually can I exercise kindness to myself and that seemed to be bringing me closer and recently it's just rested on this word, which is gentleness, um, which I'm just trying to be more gentle on myself mm. instead of mm. me, you know, picking up something and dropping it and going, oh, man, come on, you're better than that, you know, to, oh, right. you dropped it, <laughs> you know, and just that, just that subtle shift 
and recognizing that actually I'm reprogramming myself again and again with gentleness by approaching it um, slightly differently with that intention, then I can actually, when something happens out externally, I respond with greater gentleness outside because I've rewired myself. Your thoughts on this? Well, think about this. Mm. Uh, there's the, the self that is self-critical and mm. it says, you know, oh, I only got 12 thank yous, I need two more. <laughs> whatever, yeah. whatever your yeah. personal thank you I might be. Yeah. <laughs> so think how different it would be if the part of your mind that sees mm. what, quote, you did wrong, didn't mm. see it as wrong, but saw it as funny. Mm. Like laughed about it. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed about all of these um, amazing beings that I was with in Asia was they laugh a lot. Mm. And they laugh about themselves particularly. Yeah. So yeah. being able to laugh at yourself means that you, on the one hand, have a little distance. You're mm. not caught in what it was. And the other is that you can spin it in a way where it gives you pleasure instead of, you know, a kick in the pants or whatever. <laughs> you want. So that's a form of self-love. In Asian languages and probably ancient languages too, the word compassion included self-compassion. Mm. In modern terms, we think of compassion as for other people. We leave ourselves mm. out of it. Mm. I think that's a big omission. So what, what would it take for you to be kind to yourself? Maybe getting more sleep, for example. You mentioned sleep mm. deprivation. So why don't you, you know, give yourself the pleasure of a nap? Mm. That's a form of self-love. That's a form of self-compassion. It depends on what you need. And mm. only you know what you really need. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. And, yeah, I love the humor piece because I um, was watching... I heard Sogni say somewhere in the close of one of his speeches, you know, incredible talk. And, uh, and on the back of it, the talk was, okay, any, any parting, any parting words, um, Sogni Rinpoche and, uh, and, uh, don't lose your humor. <laughs> exactly. And I, was, and I, was like, I just, I couldn't get over it. I was like, that was a really profound 90 minutes. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and, then, and then at the end, he espoused humor like you're referring to now. This yeah. He's actually one of the funniest people I know. So mm. when you're yeah. hanging out with him, constantly yeah. joking around. Constantly. Yeah. 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 And, and I think um, that lightness mm. is really a, a, not just a good thing for us. I think it's a sign of a deeper evolution too. Mm. Mm. I think it's interesting because on some level people associate, and this is me leaning back into the, the C-suite exec space, take seriousness to mean maturity. And yet in spiritual maturity, what I'm hearing you say is humor is actually a big, a big well, telltale sign. I mm. think that um, uh, a, an executive needs to be serious about the things that, that matter mm. in that context. Uh, if there's if they take that home and they're serious that way with everybody in their lives, that's a problem. Mm. Uh, you know, so I think seriousness has its place, has its reasons, but lightness as a way of being is definitely much better. 
Mm. So you, you don't you don't want to be an executive joking about the things that matter in that mm -hmm. context, but you don't want to be that executive seriousness all the time everywhere. You need the flexibility, don't you think? Mm. The range. Yeah, I love it. I totally, I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Totally agree. So why we meditate? So we've scratched some of the surface here in terms of there is openness as a whole body of mm. work. Um, sure. compassion as a whole body of work thank you so much mm -hmm. and then also this lightness that you're referring to as well um and it's it's profound because the the practices you've described even you know that you gave on this uh yeah. episode have been they're quite simple places to enter such deep and uh yeah uh i want to use the word intriguing but uh inspiring is probably the right word um yes. inspiring yeah. states of and character traits that you could cultivate within yourself that would help you navigate your life so much better. Why we meditate, um, grounded body, open heart, clear mind. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about why those, why that phrase came about grounded body, open heart, clear mind? Well, I think that those are the three dimensions that, uh, these practices work in. And I, I would recommend not just the book, why we meditate, but Sukhni Rinpoche made a series of videos where he demonstrates each of his methods mm -hmm. uh, for anybody. You don't have to be uh, Tibetan, you don't have to be anything mm -hmm. to benefit from these practices. Uh, and some of them deal with uh, what in his context is called the subtle body. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, a kind of an energetic body that many uh, practitioners in the West deal with but is not recognized and certainly in mainstream psychology, but it, it makes a big difference. So for example, if you do, for example, Tai Chi, you're working with mm. that dimension of mm. the body. If you do yoga, you are. Uh, so there's the body part and then, uh, give me the three again, because I can't mm -hmm. remember. Grounded body, open heart. Yeah. Yeah, open heart is all about compassion for yourself as well as the people around you or people you run into and mm -hmm. then clear mind i think is is the ultimate goal which is to not have uh... hey you there guys thank you so much for tuning into this incredible conversation on compassionate leadership with dr daniel goldman the internet dropped out just at the very last little minute there and uh, dr daniel goldman had another appointment to attend to so I just want to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Daniel Goldman again and again. <laughs> His books have been incredible game changers for me on my journey, altered traits and emotional intelligence being seminal in my journey. And uh, also he's recently written Why We Meditate. I'll put links to uh, the Rinpoche's videos that um, Dr. Daniel Goldman was referring to in the show notes below, along with a link to Why We Meditate, if you guys want to check that out further. And uh, I want to take this opportunity, Dr. Daniel Goldman, hopefully you're watching the replay. Thank you so much again for your time, your energy, your wisdom, your guidance. They, you know, all the work you've put into this work, like, you know, 22 years ago, you wrote Emotional Intelligence, but your journey on this path started even long before then. So I just really want to take this opportunity to thank you so much. And as always, Inspired Evolution Tribe, the depth at which you're excited to just inspire your evolution and be here and show up and tune into this episodes. Man, you guys humble me. Thank you so much for your presence presence a topic we covered deeply in this conversation and being here and tuning in and staying inspired to keep evolving big love y'all 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this amazing episode of The Inspired Evolution. Without you, the Inspired Evolution tribe, this podcast would not be what it is today. Thank you so much for your love and your support. Thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve. It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to The Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of The Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal. And one of the other benefits, if you're having any insights or shifts from these episodes that you want to chat about, or if you'd like to leave myself or the guest a message, please do so in the comments on YouTube. I truly look forward to hearing from you. And as always, Tribe, remember to stay inspired and keep evolving. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.